friends, welcome back. This is officially the halfway point of our journey through this exploration. And I am sure you all have tons of thoughts and ideas to share, and I'm really curious to hear them all. As a reminder, or for those who may be joining us for the first time, this is the Classics Podcast Reclamation, an intervention in the current conversation around theater history, where we recenter and uplift the black writers and storytellers of the American theater both the celebrated and the forgotten. My name is Brittany Bradford, and this is episode three of our series on Black performance in the era of minstrelsy. And this week, we'll be exploring Black musical beginnings. On a summer evening in 1894, a New York Sun reporter walked up to a rooftop garden and saw a performance by a man billed as Kui Baba, the Hindu baritone. From the reporter's perspective, the man was not a particularly skilled singer, but he immediately recognized him as the same colored man he'd seen a few weeks prior in a Philadelphia show. The reporter asked the manager about the charade. The manager explained that there was such a prejudice against black performers that he could never consider hiring a performer named Johnson or Jackson. Billing this black man as Hindu was the only way to make him palatable to his white audience. Writing in the sun, the reporter asks, What then can be the fate of the aspiring Negro singer, reciter, or actor in the face of such prejudice among people who began fighting three, three years ago to set him free and put him upon an equality with the whites of the South? The world of 1894 is very different from the world in which we met the higher sisters and Fisk Jubilee singers in the previous episode. If you remember, in 1871, Charles Hicks's Georgia minstrels had toured without blackface. Now, in 1894, black troops were corking up to suit the audience demand. In 1880, the Higher Sisters produced the first truly integrated staging of Uncle Tom's Cabin. By 1894, a similar venture in San Francisco was doomed by white actors' refusal to trod the boards with the black Uncle Tom. While the landmark Plessy v. Ferguson case codifying Jim Crow was still two years away, Already, the promise of Reconstruction has been dismantled and overtaken by a national fervor of white supremacy. Even in the North, the movement toward freedom was met with hostility. To be sympathetic to someone's fight for freedom is not to say that you want them to be equal. This plays out in the arts in the same way it plays out everywhere else. Even so, Black artists continue to work toward a more just society and strive toward greater opportunity. Their vision would launch a new generation of artists, and their renewed attention to community would create new art forms and a whole new scene. We spoke to NYU professor Michael Dinwiddie about this era. So you had this kind of African-American explosion of we are free by you know, 1865, we're an illiterate people. By 1900, most of us can read. You know, In one generation, we've gone through that. In, in one generation, we're owning land, we're having property, we're doing all these things. We really have, despite the backlash that's happening because the, the, as we know from Obama, the more we advance, the more you're gonna have to deal with what comes after. And so in the 1890s, you have a period where these African-American men who have grown up seeing and being, seeing minstrelsy, some of them performing in minstrelsy, now have the opportunity to create their own shows. No two groups exemplify this transformation more than two duos. Cole and Johnson, and Williams and Walker. Now, listen, I'm not trying to play favorites here. I love a lot of these folks, but you all know from the previous episode that my heart goes slightly a flutter for Bob Cole. Part of that is my fascination with his ability to change. 
I had a teacher once who said that the way to stay in this business is to be Darwinian in nature, to be adaptable. Ava DuVernay talks about being a shapeshifter and doing many things because, quote, you can't hit a moving target. And I have a lot of curiosity about how one does that and stays true to themselves and how one does that as a black artist in the 19th century. And also, just as a consumer of art, I just wish I could see his skills at work. Because he, like many of the folks we've met thus far, sounded like an absolutely incredible, engaging, complex artist. As James Weldon Johnson once said, Bob Cole was the greatest single force in Negro theater, most facile, good singer, excellent dancer, could write dialogue and music, stage the play, act the part, and was a serious student of the theater and drama. So let's get into it. And let's let's start with Bob, yeah? My buddy, Bob Cole, was born in Athens, Georgia in 1868, the only boy born to parents heavily involved with the Negro Reconstruction politics of the time. Cole was highly educated. He was a student at one of the Freeman schools, which were founded when he was born, and then went on to study at Atlanta University. Not only was Cole's upbringing heavily influenced by the Black political movement of the time, but his family was also quite musical. He grew up with a piano in the home, having music playing constantly. This blending of music and politics, the idea of artist as citizen, would end up being a character trait of much of Cole's later works. When he sets off on his own in 1891, he got his first big break when he jumped on board the Sam Lucas vehicle, The Creole Show, which we mentioned in episode two. Perhaps it was serendipitous that his first break would come working on a show with Sam Lucas, a man who worked his way up the ladder when he was starting himself, as Bob Cole ends up doing the same in the Creole show. He initially came in with his comedy dancing partner and was a songwriter for the review. He then became the stage manager of the show, then wrote skits for the show, and then songs for the show, publishing his first two songs in 1893. In 1894, during an off-season for the Creole show, Cole heads to New York and forms a stock company at Worth's Museum. Worth's was what was known as a dime museum that would have entertainments and performances as well. It was popular, cheaper entertainment for the working class, hence the dime in Dime Museum. And in his unpublished autobiography, composer Will Marion Cook recalled, Worth's Museum on 30th Street and 6th Avenue was the place where I first got any real experience in Negro show business. On this corner was a small theater where the best performers, Ben Hun, Tom Brown, and Bob Cole, often put on afterpieces and shared in the proceeds with the proprietor. I lived on 32nd Street near there. When Bob Cole told me he was to run the show for a week and asked me to be musical director, I jumped at the chance. Perhaps because of how important education was within Cole's own household and a sign of his inventiveness and ingenuity, the stock company becomes a training school. It is the first of its kind, a black training ground led by other black performers. The training is a pipeline to the stock company itself, something that continues to happen to a smaller degree in training programs across the country to this day. Students at UC San Diego working at La Jolla Playhouse or Yale drama students connected to Yale Rep and so on. The school lasts for about two years, ending just as Cole's time in the Creole show also comes to an end. Cole's next venture proves to be as meaningful and as serendipitous as the first. Similar to Charles Hicks, Cole is able to create opportunities for himself wherever he goes. But perhaps unlike Hicks, who was his own one-man band through and through, 
Cole's career trajectory was really remarkable because of the collaborations he formed. For the 1896-97 season, Cole jumps into yet another successful tour, this time with Black Patty's Troubadours. And Black Patty's Troubadours, if you remember, was a white-owned troupe named for and headlined by Ciceretta Jones, who, like the higher sisters, began as an opera singer. And when Cole enters the company, his time there intersects with that of two other up-and-coming minstrel stars. One who would become a legend in her own right, Ada Overton Walker, and the other who would be an influential collaborator with Cole, Billy Johnson. The two hit it off immediately. In their one season together with the Troubadours, they began to write. And as this is happening, Cole attempts to use his new status in the company to advocate for the entire group. He fights for higher wages and better working conditions. When the managers balk, he takes his sheet music and heads out of town, leaving the troupe materialist. The white company owners retaliate, having Cole arrested. When the case goes to court, Cole argues, These men have amassed a fortune from the product of my brain, and now they call me a thief. I won't give up. But he loses and is sentenced to jail. On top of that, he is blacklisted by the management of Black Patties, which prevents him from performing on stage in the United States. In addition, the company owner threatens to boycott for life any performer who appeared in one of his productions. Not to be outdone, Cole refuses to bend. In an 1898 response to the blacklist, he wrote the Colored Actors Declaration of Independence, asserting the need for Black ownership of companies, projects, and managers. And just like Hicks, Cole finds a workaround. Within a year, Cole and Johnson are working on a new show called A Trip to Coontown. Oh, what a title. <laughs> the show follows Johnson's Jim Flimflammer, a con artist who unsuccessfully tries to trick an old man, played by Sam Lucas, out of his pension. Bob Cole appears as Willie Wayside, a slow-witted Jim Crow-like tramp only played in whiteface, who manages to save the day an example of how Cole was working to switch up character tropes for minstrelsy. Unable to find venues in the United States, Cole and Johnson take the show to Canada, where it is so popular that in 1898, New York producers Claw and Erlinger break with their white brethren and open the show at Jacobs Third Avenue Theater. A trip to Coontown was a defining moment in Black theater history. It was the first truly all-Black production the first to feature a Black cast and Black writing and production and management team. As Issa Rae would say, everybody Black. With a renewed determination to transform the theatrical landscape, Bob Cole refused any performance of the show in a segregated theater. That said, let's take a minute and talk about that title. And in order to talk about that title, we have got to have a chat about what was known as the Coon Song. In her book, Ragged But Right, Lynn Abbott outlines the evolution of the songs. Coon songs, she says, with their ugly name, typically featured lyrics in Negro dialect, caricaturing African-American life, set to the melodious strains of ragtime music. The designation first took hold during the 1880s under the influence of such portentous hits as the Alabama Coon, I'm the father of a little black coon, and new coon in town. But the real craze commenced in 1897 with the inception of the Ragtime Coon Song. As ragtime reached the height of its popularity, the mainstream public was becoming somewhat obsessed with black vernacular music, dance, and poetics. 
This condition produced an exponential increase in professional opportunities for black entertainers and encouraged African-Americans in every branch of the profession to explore their distinctive musical folklore more forthrightly. However, African-Americans gained the mainstream stage only because white audiences demanded they be there. Their fortunes remained subject to the coon song-loving disposition of the dominant race and the inherited conventions of minstrelsy. End quote. And no song better exemplifies this than Ernest Hogan's 1896 hit, All Coons Look Alike to Me. Ernest Hogan was a widely respected Black performer in the late 19th century. He was a very popular entertainer and a pioneer in Black musical shows. He is credited with composing the first ragtime song, La Pa Mala, in 1895. It did well, but nowhere near the song he released the following year. The lyrics were a spoof of the song, All Pimps Look Alike to Me. The song was an enormous hit, but the title inspired a great backlash. Hogan later deeply regretted ever writing the song. Both the title and the subsequent lyric sheet cover art inspired a great ugliness from which he would never mentally recover. Here's musician Rhiannon Giddens on the subject. You kind of have to get like look at enough of these music sheets, you know, to look at enough of these grinning. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. It's really, really tough. There's always a moment in my show um, when I talk about the Coon song, you know, which is just not great. I mean, it's just minstrelsy 2.0, right? It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's using all the same stuff. And when you consider like, you know, black minstrels got really, really rich off of some of these songs as well, you know, and that you know, just adds to the complexity of it. But I talk about all coons look alike to me, the cultural flashpoint. And I tell people, I'm like, these were the popular songs. Y'all got to understand like this song with this title and I say it, and there's always a, you know, like that's terrible. I'm like, yes. And that man made a lot of money. That black man made a lot of money off of that song. Did he regret it? He said he did, but what is, you know, like it just adds all this stuff, but then you get like getting a knife fight if you whistled the first few bars of that tune, you know? So then I look at that song and I'm like, it's a catchy song. And that's like, we haven't even talked about why was minstrelsy so popular? Why was it, why did it take over? By 1909, 10 years after the premiere of A Trip to Coontown, Bob Cole did an interview with the Indianapolis Freeman that revealed his own transformation. The word coon is very insinuating and must soon be eliminated. I'm going to crusade against the word coon. The best class of white people in America abhor the word coon and feel ashamed whenever they hear it used. It is interesting, to say the least, that it was, quote, the best class of white people that Cole seems to have the most concern for on this topic. And when the interviewer asked how he had come to name his comedy of several years back, A Trip to Coontown, he replied, That day has passed with a softly flowing tide of revelations. It is important to note that Bob Cole was a forward-thinking artist who himself never performed in blackface. Over the next decade, Cole and other black artists who had gained success by trading in on the popularity of the coon song would come together and think about their work, their impact, and create a new vision. They would gather and build a new sense of fellowship. They were building a new black artist community. And as a community, they began to realize they could no longer make work in the same way. 
is eerily reminiscent to conversations had in the Black artist community in 2020 as well. These artists of the past, they start to move away from the tropes of the early minstrelsy period. They branch out and discover new ways of telling stories. In other words, they would begin to evolve. But that was later. In 1898, a trip to Coontan would continue to find success as it embarked on what became a three-year tour. The end of that tour was the end of Colin Johnson. Billy Johnson, anyway. Shortly after the pair parted ways, Cole became acquainted with two musical brothers from Jacksonville, Florida, also named Johnson, Jay Rosamond and James Weldon. Meanwhile, another duo from the West Coast was making its own mark. And we finally arrived at someone you might know. I'm, of course, really super interested in um, Williams and Walker because they were such interesting examples of two different styles, you know, of taking those themes of minstrelsy and Burt Williams obviously being comfortable in blackface and all the different levels um, being um, with Bahamian and not even considering himself American in some ways and, you know, using mask work in, you know, the, com the comparison to, you know, white folk using mask work, like you talk thinking about working class people say connecting to this old sort of European tradition to tell the story of the working class. There's elements of that in minstrelsy and to see how he uses, you know, how he uses that mask work in, in similar and yet not similar ways uh, right. to, you know, other black minstrels. And then of course, his partner who did not use blackface, they kind of represent to me a, a lot all at once. We also have some of their recordings, you know, not a lot, but we, you know, and that's huge. So th that tends to also kind of dominate like who you can really study. If if there's no recordings of somebody, you, you kind of hit a, you hit a wall, yeah. um, which is, you know, the way it is. Born in the Bahamas, Burt Williams emigrated with his family to the U.S. as a child, eventually settling in Riverside, California, not far from where I spent my childhood. In 1891, he was persuaded by veteran minstrel impresario Lou Johnson, remember him, to join his troupe for a season. One day, a colored man named Lou Johnson, who kept a barber shop in San Francisco, asked Bert Williams if he did not want to join a little company that he intended to take up along the coast to play the lumber camps between San Francisco and Eureka, and then come back by way of the mining camps at the western edge of the mountains. That was the way Bert Williams gained his entrance to the stage. That was Booker T. Washington. While Burt Williams fell into entertainment, George Walker had been actively pursuing it since he was a child. And after cutting his teeth in local minstrel shows, he set out from Lawrence, Kansas to California to hone his craft. The West was not so up to date as it is now. I had to rough it and rough it I did. There were many quack doctors doing business in the West. They traveled from one town to another in wagons and gave shows in order to get large crowds of people together so as to sell medicine. I did not hesitate to ask the quacks for a job. First one, and then the other hired me. When we arrived in a town, 
and our show started, I was generally the first to attract attention. I would mount the wagon and commence to sing and dance, make faces and tell stories and rattle the bones. Eventually, Walker found himself in San Francisco in 1893, and in Burt Williams, he found a kindred spirit. The two teamed up, honing their craft and their act. In those days, black-faced white comedians were numerous and very popular. They billed themselves coons. Bert and I watched the white coons and were often much amused at seeing white men with black cork on their faces trying to imitate black folks. Nothing about these white men's actions was natural and therefore nothing was as interesting as if black performers had been dancing and singing their own songs in their own way. We thought that as there seemed to be a great demand for black faces on the stage, we would do all we could to get what we felt belonged to us by the laws of nature. As white men with black faces were billing themselves coon, Williams and Walker would do well to build themselves the two real coons. And so we did. The characters were based off minstrel stereotypes like Zip Coon and Jim Crow. In the duo, Walker at first played the slower character, while Williams played the sly huckster, but it didn't work out as well, and they discovered flipping the roles served both men better. And Bert made another discovery. One day at Moore's Wonderland in Detroit, just for a lark, I blacked my face and tried the song, Oh, I don't know, you're not so warm. <laughs> Nobody was more surprised than I when it went like a house on fire. Then I began to find myself. Williams was from Nassau in the Bahamas. He was light-skinned and didn't really think of himself as American as he was West Indian. He spent a lot of time studying Southern Black American dialect, and he felt putting on the mask of Blackness helped him get into the role. Walker, on the other hand, who had grown up with minstrel troops in the South and was darker than Williams, really didn't like blackface and did not put cork on. Two completely different approaches to black performance and within the same duo. Blackface white comedians used to make themselves look as ridiculous as they could when portraying a darky character. In their makeup, they always had tremendously big red lips and their costumes were frightfully exaggerated. The one fatal result of this to the colored performers was that they imitated the white performers in their makeup as darkies. Nothing seemed more absurd than to see a colored man making himself look ridiculous in order to portray himself. My partner, Mr. Williams, is the first man that I know of our race to attempt to delineate a darkie in a perfectly natural way. And I think much of his success is due to that fact. In 1896, Williams and Walker's Two Real Coons Act landed them a New York gig in a vaudeville show called The Gold Bug. That show died quickly, but the pair made such an impression that they immediately got booked at Coster and Biles, a prominent 3,700-seat music hall where they played for 40 weeks. They were personally responsible for making the cakewalk a New York and then national obsession. Even before they came down from their first brush with fame, Walker and Williams sensed that they could do more and do better. As the two real coons, we made our first hit in New York. Before our run terminated, we discovered an important fact. 
The one hope of the colored performer must be in making a radical departure from the old darky style of singing and dancing. So we set ourselves the task of thinking along new lines. The first move was to hire a flat in 53rd Street, furnish it, and throw our doors open to all colored men who possess theatrical and music ability and ambition. The Williams and Walker flat soon became the headquarters of all artistic young men of our race who were stage struck. Among those who frequented our home were Mrs. Will Marion Cook, Harry T. Burley, Bob Cole, and Billy Johnson, J.A. Ship, the late Willie Aku, a man of much musical ability, and many others whose names are well known in the professional world. We also entertained the late Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the Negro poet who wrote lyrics for us. By having these men around us, we had an opportunity to study the musical and theatrical ability of the most talented members of our race. At that stage of the development of Williams and Walker, we saw that the colored performer would have to get away from the ragtime limitations of the darkie, and we decided to make a break so as to save ourselves and others. From these salons, Williams and Walker began to find their all-star crew, and they were soon collaborating with composer Will Marion Cook and famous poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who sometimes assumed the role of lyricist. The Williams and Walker Company was also enhanced by two talented women who would become iconic in their own right, one of whom we've already mentioned, brilliant dancer, choreographer, and actress Ada Overton, who would soon marry George Walker and become Ada Overton Walker, and young singer and actress Abby Mitchell. With this team, Williams and Walker began creating the plays that would cement their reputations, in particular one which has come to define the era, their 1903 musical Indahomey, which we will take a closer look at in episode five. This new creative community would transform the landscape beyond Williams and Walker. In the 1890s, you have a period where these African-American men who have grown up seeing and being seeing minstrelsy, some of them performing in minstrelsy, now have the opportunity to create their own shows. And they have the opportunity to produce them, direct them, tour them around the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because remember, Broadway doesn't come into being until 1904, really. That's when Times Square happens and all that. So this notion of it has to be on Broadway to be a hit is, is not really, you know, thought of in that way so but africa but you do find african-american shows going to broadway you know i'm going to talk about um the johnson brothers you know james weldon johnson and j rosamond johnson james weldon johnson wrote lift every voice and sing which became the negro national anthem but you know they, they first made their money in in the broadway world writing music for white entertainers writing songs that became hit songs them but then they started putting their own shows and what i love about their shows so i'm going to just talk about two of their shows because I, I, I mean it's so fascinating uh, i'm going to talk about um the red moon which is a story a love story of a native american girl and african-american man who fall in love and there's resistance from their two families of course but they end up getting together and being together and everything so already you see african-americans Thinking, first of all, it's part of our tradition. We've always been connected with other groups. We've always been, if we look at all our skin colors, we're everything, right? You know, we know everything. So that's the play they're writing, kind of exposing the audience to the truth of the fact that in our acculturation, interracial love is not an alien concept. 
Okay, that's number one. So like that's already a revolutionary step. Then the other one that I want to mention is the Shoe Fly Regiment, in which we have a heroic African American lead, which I remember now this is all contradicting minstrelsy, um, who is gonna go off to fight in the Spanish American War. He's a student, a college student, a college this period when you know so few people have gone to college. He goes off and his girlfriend or fiance, I should say, is against it. So he comes back and he's a hero. So those are two shows that hit me. And then, of course, the other thing that hit you about that period is African-Americans are proud of their Africanness. You know, I've talked a little about my love and respect for Bob Cole. And I will say there are a lot of people I've grown to admire throughout this. But why I think I gravitate toward Bob, I think we're on a first name basis now, is because of the deep feeling of soul, understanding soul that I have felt whilst learning about his life. And of course, you know, I don't know him. He didn't know me. Who knows if he'd feel the same way about me, right? This could be purely ego speaking, but it feels in my body like a sense of relation. I can only speak on my own experiences and say, I have felt dualities at play to being a black artist in this country. There are compromises, there are challenges, and there are moments of community and creativity and construction of a new and better future. I think the challenge is to not compromise so much that you lose your essence, your humanity, the reason you're doing this in the first place. And how to do that in the moment is sometimes very hard. For me, I found that it's through making some mistakes or finding myself involved in not as inclusive collaborations that I've learned what it is I will and will not accept in the future and holding tightly to the community around me who also believes in and is putting the work into building the future we want to see. And I get a sense of that from Bob Cole, and I admire that. I'm learning from that. And I guess I think that maybe in the way that I feel if I met James Baldwin that we would hopefully be friends and have meaningful conversations about becoming better artists, better citizens, better humans, I suppose... In what I know of Bob Cole, I feel like I can see myself having long conversations in the lobby after one of his shows, drinking cheap beer and eating cheese plates, talking about, okay, now what next? What have I learned? How can we make this better? And it's those conversations and sense of community that keeps me in this just as much, if not more, than the work itself. For me, the process is just as important as the product. And that process should be generative. It has energy. It, it moves us to act and to not stay stagnant. I feel that energy now, predominantly when I'm in black spaces. And it's why, frankly, they're some of my favorite places to create art in. Black spaces, women-led spaces, intersectional spaces. And I love that it's not a new concept, as Michael Dinwiddie said earlier that we get to share that energy and be in conversation now with those folks who were creating a new world then. This growing arts community that they were producing, it really takes off between a trip to Coontown and later Bob Cole vehicles like Red Moon and Shoefly. Their imagination gets bigger. Their vision becomes more vast and they begin to accomplish those things that were mere ideas for who knows how long in their artistic processes. But of course, Whenever you have a period of black excellence, we know what happens next. In New York, the backlash of 1900 arrived on two fronts. The first was a riot. James Weldon Johnson recalls, 
Early in the evening of August 15th, the fourth great New York race riot burst in full fury. A mob of several thousand raged up and down 8th Avenue and through the side streets from 27th to 42nd. Negroes were seized wherever they were found and brutally beaten. Men and women were dragged from streetcars and assaulted. When Negroes ran to policemen for protection, even begging to be locked up for safety, they were thrown back to the mob. The police themselves beat many Negroes as cruelly as did the mob. An intimate friend of mine was one of those who ran to the police for protection. He received such a clubbing at their hands that he had to be taken to the hospital to have his scalp stitched in several places. It was a beating from which he never fully recovered. During the height of the riot, the cry went out to get Ernest Hogan and Williams and Walker and Cole and Johnson. These seemed to be the only individual names the crowd was familiar with. Ernest Hogan was at the time playing at the New York Winter Garden in Times Square. For safety, he was kept in the theater all night. George Walker had a narrow escape. The riot of 1900 was a brutish orgy, which, if it was not incited by the police, was, to say the least, abetted by them. The second was a union. In 1900, the White Rats of America was born. The group's mission was to advocate for the right of vaudeville performers. There was a catch, though. Membership was limited to white men, and the rats fought viciously to keep top-dollar jobs out of black hands. I think it's also important to note here that one of the members of White Rats goes on to form Actors' Equity. But instead of deterring the black artist community, this opposition only served to galvanize them. From the rubble of the riots, they built a whole new foundation. By 1900, there was a new center established on West 53rd Street. In this new center, there sprang up a new phase of life among colored New Yorkers. Two well-appointed hotels, the Marshall and the Maceo, run by colored men, were opened and became the centers of a fashionable sort of life that hitherto had not existed. The Marshall, run by Jimmy Marshall, became famous as the headquarters of Negro talent. There gathered the actors, the musicians, the composers, the writers, and the better-paid vaudevillians. And there one went to get a close-up of Cole and Johnson, Williams and Walker, Ernest Hogan, Will Marion Cook, Jim Europe, Ada Overton, Abby Mitchell, Al Johns, Theodore Drury, Will Dixon, and Ford Dabney. They moved from inside their own apartments and flats and spilled into public spaces, creating a dizzying black performance scene with the brightest talents of the era. Banned from the white rats, the players, and the lambs, they banded together to create their own organizations. 1908 saw the birth of the Frogs, the brainchild of George Walker. Founding members included Burt Williams, Bob Cole, J. Rosamond Johnson, writers Jesse A. Shipp and Alex Rogers, New York Age arts critic and lyricist Lester Walton, and trailblazing musician James Reese Europe. Their visionary organization was created to connect Black theater makers to Black artists and thinkers in art, literature, music, scientific and liberal professions, and patrons of the arts. The group was designed to create, quote, a library relating especially to the history of the Negro and the collection and preservation of all folklore, of pictures, and bills of the plays in which the Negro has participated. This group was a Black arts collective, a coalition built to support each other financially and to establish a legacy. 
It claimed a space for theater as worthy of critique and conversation among the other arts. And soon other groups started to emerge. The following year, performer Leon Williams created a union of sorts, the Colored Vaudeville Benefit Association, which also served as a relief fund to support older actors and cover burial expenses. First of all, the rats, the white rats would not allow blacks. That's, you know, the, uh, that was the white organization of uh, actors and artists. And so the best and the top African-American performers who at the time were really at the top of their game create something called the Frogs. And, you know, they go before a judge and he says, I'm not going to let you name a club the Frogs. You know, they say, well, no, this is after Aristophanes, the Frogs. That's why we're calling it that. And, and they're the white rats. So why not the Frogs? I mean, because we've always we know the law is always used against us and not to benefit us. So but they they create this club. And I mean, James Reese Europe is one of the members. And it, it's really a, a club with the idea of we're going to help advance um our people as entertainers. I mean, so this is also the time where you have James Reese Europe, one of the great conductors, band leaders, composers of our time, doing concerts at Carnegie Hall to raise money for the Colored Music Settlement House in Harlem. And it didn't stop there. Black artists continued to build a new infrastructure. Around the country, new theater venues emerged that were owned or managed by Blacks, including the Maceo Theater in Washington, D.C., the Luna Park Theater in Atlanta, the Two Johns Theater in Indianapolis, and the legendary Pekin Theater in Chicago. Black publications like the Indianapolis Freeman and the Colored American created a national audience for the promotion and critique of Black shows. Remember the question from the Sun reporter in 1894? What then can be the fate of the aspiring Negro singer, reciter, or actor in the face of such prejudice among people who began fighting three, three years ago to set him free and put him upon an equality with the whites of the South? Within a decade, the answers would sound something like this. Bob Cole. We are going to have our own shows. We are going to write them ourselves. We are going to have our own stage managers, our own orchestra leader, and our own manager out front to count up. No divided houses. Our race must be seated from the boxes back. George Walker. There is an artistic side to the black race, and if it could be properly developed on the stage, I believe the theater-going public would profit much by it. The love, the humor, and the pathos of the black race in this country afford a field for wide study. And I'm sure the stage is the place where the character of the African race can be studied from a real artistic point of view with special advantages to all lovers of music and theatrical art. Ada Overton Walker. Of course it takes time to do anything worthwhile and especially to carry out great aims and accomplish good work. But when something has been accomplished, we consider the time well spent. And so we must go on working in our professions with the hope that the future will bring us more encouragement and better success and less criticism. Not that we cannot stand criticism, for we can, but for the reason that our work is a great work and ought to be encouraged in these days when it needs help and encouragement. Our stage work is grand, and our lives can be made beautiful. The promise of a new generation was being fulfilled. But in another ten years, it would all be done. Next week... 
we'll look at the end of the beginning and consider the legacy of this era, closing it out and seeing what came next. Thank you, as always, for going on this journey with us. Special thank yous to the man, the myth, the legend, Professor Michael Dinwiddie, who we are all now obsessed with, and the legendary, incredible musician that is Rhiannon Giddens. Make sure to also check out her podcast, Aria Code, that pulls back the curtain on some of the most famous arias in opera. And thank you to all our actor friends who have given voice to this episode. We love you all immensely. For more on these infamous duos, check out our website, theclassics.org. That's T-H-E-C-L-A-S-S-I-X.org. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at It's The Classics. This episode was produced by Classics and Theater for a New Audience. Our sound engineers are Twee McCallum and Aubrey Dubay. The theme song was composed by Alfonso Horn. The episode music was composed by Jeffrey Miller. See you next week. 